Blog Talk Radio. your host, Shamor and Shakir, and tonight I'm rolling solo to start. Uh, Shakir had to take care of some family business, so uh, we definitely excuse his absence. He has our blessing. Take care of your family, man. Um, And so we're going to take care of business um, like we can. Um, There are so many things that are on our plate uh, for discussion here later. Um, but before we get into that vibe, we're going to spend some time getting to know our guest for the evening. Um, this gentleman is an author, and so we're going to get to learn a little bit more about his um, journey uh, into writing. So we're going to keep him holding too long, and I'm definitely going to um, let him tell us a little bit more about um, Savannah and his writing, and um, we're going to get inside what makes this author an essence best-selling writer. Definitely something that um, we want to know what we can find in his works. So I'm sure that um, he will enlighten us all his greatness. So uh, with no further ado, I really don't want to keep him holding. 
we have author Robert Mickles Sr., who will be joining us for the evening. Hello, and how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing this evening? I can't complain yet. Okay, I accept that. <laughs> this is the part of the show where it's all good. We want to kind of jump into um, your work. Um, we want to talk about um, any projects you have coming on. and um, Definitely want to get a feel for you as an author. Um, and then you're the person. So um, generally, this is the part of the show where it's all about you. <laughs> so, um, But later on, when it's about everybody else, then I'll tell you how I really feel. No, I'm kidding. Um, but we're going to go ahead and just kind of let you tell us a little bit about what um, made you a writer. What, um, why did you choose your content? And tell us a little bit about the author. Okay. I was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1953. Um, Three years into my life, my mother relocated to Washington, D.C. So I spent my early years in southeast Washington, D.C., around Anacostia area. At the age of 13, I came to Savannah to live with my real father. I had a stepfather in D.C. who was very abusive. So at 13, I was old enough to fight back. So my mom sent me to my father in Savannah. And uh, that was a completely different world. Coming from Washington, D.C. and going down to rural Savannah, Georgia, in the heart of uh, redneck country was a, uh, say it like, it was a an experience, Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I had some adjustments to make. Um, I was told that um, I sounded like I was gay because I spoke proper English, you know. Mm. In the South, they they spoke a lot of slang, so they thought I was gay. And if you ever look at the cover, if you take a look at the cover of uh, my first novel, Blood Kim, a Savannah story, you'll see a 13-year-old boy holding up a rattlesnake on the front cover. And... The reason I did that was I knew that most blacks were afraid of snakes. So um, we were out on the playground. An old lady named Miss Phoebe, who was, like, in her 90s, she was sitting on the porch. She walked off her porch with a stick, killed this six-foot rattlesnake, turned around and walked back up on her porch, you know, Hmm. because we never saw it. So once she killed it, they gave me something to play with. Um, My father was was into construction, so I knew how to tie something called a slip knot. So I put a slip knot around the snake's head, and I held the string. I never touched the snake, but um, I had fun chasing everybody. Anyway, um, <laughs> when I came down here, I met my grandparents, and I found out that my grandmother was the first in her family that was not born a slave. Her Both her parents were slaves. And I heard stories about her childhood and it was a rural area. It's what we call the country. We used to call the country, but um, we had hogs, chickens, and all the whole good stuff. But um, yeah. Some of the elderly people used to tell me stories about their lives and working with my dad in construction. You sat around a lot, waiting. Some of the older guys, I would hear stories that they would tell, and 
my grandmother lived to be 100 years old. And um, 1988, she passed away. And um, two years later, I had kids and, you know, got married in the whole nine yards. And in 2000, I realized that my children and my grandchildren weren't going to have the opportunity to hear my grandmother's stories and some of the stories I grew up with. And that's when I decided to write Blood Kin of Savannah story. And what makes me unique is um, my mother, she's from the Bermuda Islands. And on her side, we had Portuguese slave traders. And on my father's side, we actually had slaves. So I'm in between the Portuguese slave traders on one side and slaves on the other. So this gave me a unique perspective of life, you know, uh-huh. and stories from both sides. So um, I wrote Blood, Ken, and Savannah story in 2000, but I didn't publish it. I, I, I actually wrote it for my children and grandkids. I had no, you know, inkling of publishing this book. And um, uh-huh. late, later, I had a girlfriend who was a school teacher. And at the end of the school year, she taught, like, uh, I think, eighth grade. And she would take Blood, Kenneth, Savannah's story, and she would read it to her class at the end of the year, like the last week of the school year. Mm-hmm. And she developed a lesson plan to go along with it, and she had the kids do all kind of projects. Like, they would um, she would read it to them. They would take the best part, the, the part of the book that they enjoyed or liked the, the best, and they would actually draw pictures of that scene. And God has some beautiful pictures. And the kids were actually interested in and looked forward to Blood King of Savannah's story. So, because I wrote it, you know, at a really at a eighth grade level, because I wrote it for my children and grandkids. So it's an easy read and it's a quick read. And the way I wrote it, it keeps you interested and the story kind of flows. It actually is like me taking you, snatching you up and dropping you in the middle of a slave plantation in Savannah, Georgia. So, um, once I published it, I published it in 2007, and um, within six months, it made Essence Magazine the bestsellers list. Then okay. after that, excuse me? It's amazing. Yeah, but then after I wrote that, I had pressure. Everybody wanted the second book, and that mm-hmm. is pressure on a writer because now you have to – Prove that you can do it again, and you're not a one-hit wonder. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so you gotta, you gotta put that out there. And people don't realize that when you, when you're a writer, you are sharing a part of who you are and what you are with the world, and you're subject to all kind of criticisms and, you know, opinions and. I like this and I didn't like that and and as a writer you, you you want to put out something that people enjoy. It's like a good cook. I also cook. Like as a cook you wanna put out food and you wanna watch people eating the food and enjoying it. And the same thing as a writer because we do put our hearts and our souls in our work. Right. Exactly. You know, and what I tell people, they ask me all the time about how do you become a writer? What 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 do you do? How do you start? And I tell them it's like you're sitting down in front of a person and you're actually telling this person 
a story. And yeah. that's exactly how you write, and you just keep it simple. You don't try to get all complicated and show that you have a, you know, a master's degree in wordsmithing or, you know, use all kind of fancy rhetoric. You just write from the heart mm-hmm. and, and keep it simple, you know. Just tell the story. Definitely. Okay, so um, how does your, I mean, how does your family take um, some of the, you know, um, personal stories being told? And, you know, how does your family handle it? Were they supportive? Yes, they were. I mean, I wanted my father to be proud of my work. And, you know, he um had a chance. I gave a lecture at the Civil Rights Museum here in Savannah. And he uh, was able to attend that lecture. And just to get the approval of my father was one of the greatest things I've ever experienced in my life. Like I told you, I was, you know, I lived 10 years with a stepfather, you know, and I didn't really know my father until I was 13. And um, mm-hmm. I'm a daddy's boy. You know, I'm a daddy's boy. We worked together in construction, you know, doing cement finishing. We spent a lot of time together, but, you know, I had so one of the greatest. A, and that relationship started at 13. At 13, in 1967. So it's never too late to build a relationship. You know, a lot of people, I think a lot of men feel like, you know, once that son or daughter hits that teenage years and they haven't had that bond before, it is too late. But definitely you just said or you just proved that that it's never too late. As long as a person is breathing, it's never too late. You know, it's the thing is not being so full of ourselves that we can't humble ourselves and make it work. You know, a lot of people right. they think they got this thing called pride. You know, and um, <laughs> that's one of our worst enemies. Mhm. I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't hold any grudges. You know, tell my dad, where were you all this time when I was kissing? You know, and all abused, and you know, why didn't you call? Why didn't you do this? You know, uh, I did have one instance when my real father tried to send me a bike up to Washington, D.C., and my stepfather, you know, kind of cussing him out, saying, you don't send him nothing, I got this, you know, which mm-hmm. was really crazy. But even though he was abusive, I ended up taking care of him before he died. I became a conservative wow. and his guardian, you know. It's amazing how yeah. those things like that come full circle. Yeah, I, I um, had to struggle with myself to do that, you know. A social worker, he was living in Virginia at the time. I was in Georgia. social worker called me and asked me what I'd do it. And, you know, I said, give me a few days and I'll call you back. You know, so I had to talk to some people. I had to talk to myself, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man. But um, I did it and, hey, that's just who I am, you know. All right. Definitely. Uh, I mean, and, I mean, you know, at least you did take time to respect your own feelings, you know, think about it before, just saying, oh, yes, you're wrong, and never dealing with yourself. You dealt with yourself first, and then you still made a decision to do what you consider to be the best, you know, for you. Oh, yeah. That was selfless. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, Blood Kennel Savannah's story. It's a story about two boys that were born hours apart from each other, one is the slave master's son, and the other one is 
a slave. And these boys, they grew up together because the mother of the white boy didn't want to breastfeed this child, so you know where that went. That went to the wet nurse. So mm-hmm. she she would breastfeed the slave owner's son before she would breastfeed her child. Mm-hmm. So these these boys grew up together from birth. They, now, like, like I said, they were born just like an hour apart from each other. And um, they came to find out that both of them had the same father. But they found out a lot later. But they formed a bond, and they would always compete with each other. You know, who could run the fastest? Who could throw a rock the furthest? And it got to the point, as they grew up, they really didn't spend too much time with the other kids on the plantation. You know, they were like two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. And um, this book takes you from the beginning of the Civil War, through the Civil War, and to the end of the Civil War. And that's at the end of the Civil War is when the second book, Isaiah's Tears, come into play. You know, I wrote that second. And that book is about a young 16-year-old boy who was a slave and his parents were deceased. Okay, after the war, the slave master comes to all the slaves and says, you guys are free. You can go, you can stay, whatever you want to do, do it. So here you have a 16-year-old kid who has to make a decision of what do I do now that I have freedom? You know, I don't even know what freedom is. You know, where do I go, what do I do, how do I survive? And right. while he's thinking of while he's thinking about this, he has an aunt who's a widower, and she has three kids. It's, it's three cousins. And she comes to him and says, well, you're the oldest male in the family. So whatever you decide to do, we're going to do it as a family unit. Can you imagine the pressure on a 16-year-old kid when you have an aunt who's older than you that tells you something like this? So now mm-hmm. it's, on, it's on his shoulders to make a decision. And what he decided to do was stay on the plantation for five years and both of them save up their money. And after five years, they would leave the plantation and move up to Washington, D.C. So he tells the story of what he did and how he did it as an old man looking back on his life. And in the story, he, um, I wrote like a Russian tragedy. In this story, he loses everything and everyone that he loved, one at a time through different events, alcoholism, robbery, um, spousal abuse, uh, rioting. He loses all his family members. And the thing with Isaiah is when he lost his firstborn child, a little girl, he wept so much that his tear ducts dried out. So he was unable to, so entitled Isaiah's Tears, he could not cry. And at the end of the book, he tells you, he says, don't cry for me. When I started this journey, I didn't know what freedom was. I was a slave. Now I know what freedom is. So don't cry for me. So that's the kind of short of Isaiah's tears. 
Hello? 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 You lost connection. I do apologize. This is Imaj um, Shamor's phone line dropped, so she will be right back with us. Okay. I do apologize. She just sent me a message through the system. So, but I'm not sure what other questions she may have had for you for your book, but we are in, we're, you know, I'm interested. Because I'm a Southern girl. I'm very country. I know what that red dirt looks like. Summers are like in the country with, you know, chickens and hogs and all of those those things. A slop bucket sitting out in the heat. Yeah. You know, my thing was when we were younger, we used to terrorize the hogs because that's what we had to do when we were kids. So... We de- I definitely understand. I don't know if anybody else does. But I understand that. And when you said that, you you just you met your father when you were 13, correct? Yeah. I'm, I'm just probably reiterating some things that she, um, she does. But how... Hi, I'm back. <laughs> Welcome back. We were, we were just chit-chatting while you were getting back into the system. So welcome on back. I, I, you know, we have had a good stretch where Blog Talk has been doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But today, it's not playing well. I called back in like 12 times, and it wouldn't even ring. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I definitely apologize. You were right into the interviewing. Please forgive while talking myself, Mr. Nick. Okay. So let's pick up where we So we're talk- we were talking about the ending of um, Isaiah's here. Yes. That was the last thing that I heard myself. Okay. And when I was telling you that he uh, wrote Don't Cry For Me, because I, yeah. at the beginning of this journey, I didn't know what freedom was. Now I know. Okay. I did hear that. Okay. So um, okay. so tell me a little bit about um, the reaction to to that, that book, because it's a little bit different from the, the first, oh. your first book. Okay. And in, in Isaiah's Tears, it's designed that you actually do cry for him as you read the story. You know, mm-hmm. I um when I was first writing it, I um had one of my nieces came over. She had some friends that came over with her. They were visiting from Texas, and um I walked past one of the bedrooms, and her friend was lying across the bed reading the story, and she was crying. You know, and 
when you walk in the house and you pass the room, somebody's crying, you automatically stop. And um, I stuck my head in the door and said, what's wrong? And she was reading the book, and she said, the baby died. You know, I was like, oh, wow. You know, she was actually boo-hooing. You know, and a lot of people ask me, why did I write it so, you know, why I was so sad? That's the premise of the story. A lot of people don't realize that when they freed the slaves, they gave them nothing. They were really hated on, and when they were slaves, they had the protection of their slave owners. So everybody just didn't do anything to somebody else's, you know, quote-unquote property. But mm-hmm. once they were freed, once they were freed, they had no protection under the law. They had no job. They had nowhere to stay. They had no way to eat, you know. Right. So a lot of people would make the uh, statement that uh, they were better off as slaves. You know, and even and even in the book, Isaiah actually said that at one point in time. You know, because once he uh, left the safety of the plantation, people were very cruel to each other. You know, it's like the survival of the fittest. Cation where blacks were somewhat a family unit. Now you had people you don't know doing anything and everything to survive. You know, so mm-hmm. um, that was a whole different world for him. You know, and people really don't consider that and don't, you know, understand how far our ancestors went and what they went through just to survive. Right. So, And, and I think know. that's an um, a important aspect to, to realize when um, you think about our history and how um, uh, slavery could be romanticized to some um, and why it took some a while to move away from um, still being in that mindset that this is home and they love me and they protect me and you don't know what you're going to get out there. I think that's an important aspect um, to know because I think a lot of people um, who, you know, never endured it, but where we are now, looking back, it's easy to say, I wouldn't be no slave, you know. And I think there's an element that is missing in our our human experience, you know, um, to understand, you know, you can't oppress the people just physically. You also have to do damage to their mental and their emotion in order to keep them oppressed, even when it looks like you've taken your hands off of them. Yeah, and I don't but think people lot, give that enough credit. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that as the slave masters were brainwashing the slaves, they were also brainwashing themselves. Mm-hmm. Think think about this. You know, I'm your slave. Yeah. You suck off of my woman's tits. I raise your kids. I cook your food. I clean your house but you don't trust me. Right. And you hate me. You right. have to be seriously damaged to even think like that. Right. You know, uh, my grandmother's mother was a slave. She never left the plantation that she lived on, even after she was freed 
she would not leave that plantation. Hmm. You know, that's that's 400 years of brainwashing to the right. African-American people, you know. Right. And, and doing my research and uh, writing my books, some of the things that these people did to their slaves it's just mind-boggling how they could even come up with an idea to do that to another person, even though they could right. consider people they consider what's called shadow. How can you even think of some of the things that they did? Some of those it's, it's terrible things, right, to just do oh. to anybody, and even to to be um, able to watch it and, and and see them having a human reaction to the torture and not associate them as human. How do you do that? Well, my grand my great grandmother, her body was burnt on one side. She was in a cabin and her mother was out in the field and the cabin caught on fire. My great grandmother did not stop working to save her own child. This child almost burned wow. to death because my great grandma wow. was, you know, so so brainwashed that she didn't move to wow. save her own child. Now this was my grandmother's mother who was burned. So it was my great grandmother who was, you know, the one who was so afraid to even help her own child. That is some heavy-duty brainwashing. Right. Yeah, because just the maternal instinct. Yes, and, any and mother know, is going to... Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a natural nurturer. And so, yeah. you know, it's, without thinking, that's what you do. You, you do. Go for your child, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's part of my legacy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and, and those are now the real stories. Those are the real stories yes. that that paint the picture so clearly. When you're talking about a, a mindset, you know, and and how a conditioning can really occur, how you can really condition a person to do, you know, exactly what you want them to do by whatever means it takes, and that people can actually be conditioned. I, I don't think we give enough credit to the fact that. There are ways that you can get people to be and do exactly what you want over time, and that that's that conditioning to to see what you do to other people who don't comply, to to know mm-hmm. that you will and don't have limits, and you will do. It doesn't matter. I'm expendable, you know. It doesn't matter if um, I'm the next one because you'll replace me. I mean, those things to realize that you are so invaluable to somebody that you are less than their property. You know, they, they value property more than they value you as far as life is concerned. And to know that, definitely that's a means of conditioning someone to oh, yes. do exactly what you want. These people, And that, that was real. They care more about their dogs and horses than they did about the right. slaves in a lot of cases. Right. And, and right. during my research, I found out that the ones who, considered themselves Christians, godly people, they were some of the worst of the abusers when it came to slavery. You know, they they used used the Bible as a brainwashing tool for the slaves. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely, so, definitely. And, and I don't think that part is um, expressed enough. I, I mean, I definitely think that there is a, a moral value to telling stories that help build character, but I don't think enough of us look at some of our um, teachings and look at them historically for, you know, the benefit that they serve others and, and right. kind of factor that into our belief system. You know, if you factor some of that truth into your belief system, no one says you can't believe in a being that that blesses you, but look closely when you blindly follow. You have blind faith that says, mm, some of these stories that were written by man for a purpose, serving man, you might right. want to think, uh, take it with a grain of salt and just get the moral lesson out of what the story is about and apply that to your character. Um, but we could have this conversation all day and we could agree or disagree. Um, but it, it, I'm, I'm glad that you found some things like that to, to add into your writing so that, if nothing else, it generates a conversation between, you know, your your readers get to go, wow, you know, and, and experience a deeper thought process than just hearing the story. It actually, for them, gives them the opportunity to critically think about some of the things that they've been believing for a long time, minus, you know, even, even with the history of your family, um, some of the stories that they were never taught because our history is not always part of the history lesson. So um, to even hear some of those stories, because, you know, they're getting to the point where they're saying that, you know, slavery was um, almost to the point where they're saying it was voluntary and they wanted to be there and it was just economic, you know. Yeah, okay, it was just economic. Um, so to hear those stories is really important. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, some of those stories were being shared with children. That's important, too, that they get some real history in the midst of getting some fake history, <laughs> they get some things that they can bounce those off of and, and see how they don't necessarily align so that something else might be missing and then be intrigued to find some more information out on their own, you know. So right. all those things all those things I commend you on um with your with your story. Um so this is the time where we all kinda have a discussion. Um and we bring the rest of the team on. And I had to bring Imaj on early because, you know, Lost Talk doesn't care. Lost Talk is a bully. And when it says you go, you go. <laughs> so Lost Talk kicked me out. So you already kind of met Imaj. Um, I want to bring Ron on. But before we get into our own discussion that we like to, to run um, through the last part of the show, I want you to please tell everybody how they can get their hands on your work so that they can also experience some of this um, this historical and very relevant um, story. Um, first thing you can do is Google me. My full name is Robert. I have two middle initials, T as in Thomas, S as in Sam. Last name is Mickles, spelled like pickles, but it's M-I-C-K-L-E-E-S, Senior, Robert T.S. Nichols Sr., you can Google me, or you can go to Amazon.com, and you can find my book, first one, Blood Kin, K-I-N, a Savannah story, and the second one is Isaiah's Tears, 
And I'm working on a third one, which will be entitled The Son of Voodoo Daddy. So Amazon.com. Is it your family? Is it more family stories or is it something else? Yes, it is. But this, uh, The Son of Voodoo Daddy, takes place to slavery. And um, it gets into the, the mindset of a certain individual. On the plantation, there was a lady who was a healer. Her name was Miss Lizzie, and she had a son named Solomon. But Miss Lizzie was the healer. She was the one who delivered the babies. Whoever got sick got cut, got burned. She would use different herbs and roots and, you know, other things to you know, heal him. She was the doctor on the plantation. But this story mm-hmm. is about her and her son and her grandson. And it actually starts out with going back into the Bible with the story of Pharaoh. With the story of Pharaoh, you remember when Pharaoh called his two magicians and they turned the sticks into snakes? And then mm-hmm. Moses came and he threw his staff down and his stick became a snake and ate the two snakes that the magicians um, threw down. Mm-hmm. Well, it starts then. These magicians, once the Moses snake ate theirs, they felt like they failed Pharaoh. And in those times, you did not fail Pharaoh. So they knew that they were going to be killed for failing Pharaoh. So they left. It was two brothers. They left and they went south of Africa. And eventually, they uh, joined the tribe and they became the magicians or what you call a magi. You heard about the magi when Jesus was born and the magi went to um, the follow the star and so forth and so on. But these guys were magi. Uh, years and years later, their descendants actually got captured by slave traders and brought over to America. Lizzie was a ancestor of the magi, and okay. she taught her son, you know, how to be a healer and this story takes place with her grandson, and it's entitled The Son of Voodoo Daddy. So they do things, they heal people, and they, they, they look at the wrongs in society at that time. You know, they look at the uh, fake heels, they look at how people have started to mistreat each other, you know, how to start, you know, throwing their lives away. They would get paid on Friday by Monday morning. You know, they didn't have a dime to their name. It looks at issues like that. You know how people uh-huh. actually act in those days, and it also looked at the issues like uh, public hangings and things like that that were going on in Savannah during that time. All my stories take place around Savannah in this area, you know. Okay. And and it's historical fiction. Parts of it is you know actual fact, and parts of it, you know, I kind of embellish the stories. So that's my third book. Okay. But All right, and so how long do you think uh, we'll be waiting on that one? I don't know. Oh, okay, God. well, hey, you're talking to a fellow writer, so I definitely understand. Uh, I have some angry people uh, waiting on uh, follow-ups as well, so I definitely understand that. Um, so, uh, well, we'll just keep checking. So we'll check on your Facebook and um uh, We'll see when that one's coming out. Okay. Amazon dot com. Okay. All right. And then um so 
you're welcome to stay with us, or you can go ahead and call it an evening. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to bring Ron on, and we're going to have some discussion, and um, it can go anyway. Um, right now, we I'm in one of those places where we're going to have hopefully a little bit of a serious conversation this evening. But um, if you want to call it a night and peace us out, we understand because it is a 90-minute show and we know it's pretty long. So um, you're definitely um, more than welcome to tell us that you'll catch up with us next time. But this is the part of the show we have a little discussion amongst ourselves and anyone who calls in or anyone who um, hits us on social media, um, kind of interactive. So it's your choice. Okay, I think I'll hang around for a minute or so. Okay. And at any point, if you've had your feel and you're ready to go, you can just hang up and it'll just take you off and you don't have to worry about, you know, someone's by or whatever. Just hang oh. up, it'll take you out of the queue, and, and we'll just keep rolling. Okay. Okay. And uh, I hope that your readers will follow me at Robert Mickles Sr., M-I-C-K-L-E-S Sr., Robert Mickles Sr. Definitely. And um, he posts some really interesting things. Um, it, it can be uh, any walk of life. So definitely um, check him out on Facebook, see some of his posts, and that way you'll know when this third book is ready for us. Thank you. I really so, appreciate um, it. Uh, so, um, Ron, are you are you there, Ron? Yes, I am here. How's everybody doing? We're all right. How are you? All is well. How are you, Mr. Mickles? I'm fine. How are you doing, guy? Like, listen, I woke up this morning, so it's a good day. Always. Miss more books. How are we this evening? I was just going to ask if you asked me how I was. I try to be respectful. I try. I'm, try, I'm trying to respect you back. Okay, so how how is it? It just feels work? different, though. It feels different coming in by myself as opposed to with Imaj because now you before it was me and her were the ones who caused ruckus. Now it's just me, the one who caused ruckus. Like, come on, that's not fair to do to me. I know. Did you see who line I opened to help out? I opened Imaj because I know I can trust Imaj to handle business, and you, not so much. Not so much. Oh, shots. Shots fired. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so, so, so let me tell you how I am today. And, and I do feel a little bit better, thanks to my children. But I started out this morning. <clears throat> I woke up. And I had an appointment to um, meet with um, um, working on a documentary. And so um, I had to get up and get out of bed even after I had been up all night trying to work on, on a story that I'm working on, right? So I had to, but I had to get up and go meet with NAMI Dallas, and NAMI stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, and so our documentary is pretty much focusing on mental health in the Black, the African American community. That's how they prefer to say it. And so um, 
we were trying to make sure that NAMI was on board because to have a national organization that supports what you're doing as an independent, it's really big, you know. It helps a lot. And number two, we didn't want to, like, reopen rooms and then not offer people, you know, help. So um, the meeting was to make sure that it was something that they would support because some of the people associated with the film, you know, write erotica. You know, God forbid we're getting into some risque things and putting Nami's name on it. So we definitely had to meet with them and have some discussions. So I'm sitting in the parking lot waiting on Entice, actually. And um, my um That sounds like a rap song. Facebook, sitting in the parking lot waiting for Entice. And you know they used to be a rapper named Entice too, right? So, okay. Exactly. Oh and she's from she here. She went story. to um, one of my lovely HBCUs. This is how we get all off topic here. <laughs> anyway, so oh, I'm there waiting on her. So I decide I'm going to open up my, my my Facebook and just scroll Facebook and, and wait. Not just going to say some real happy good morning stuff or whatever. Well, you know when I open Facebook what I saw. Right, right. I saw, I saw a video, uh, Alton Sterling video, and I started not to click it because I'm about to go in here and try to sell, you know, promote or whatever. So I want to be in a good space and I can see from you know the dialogue surrounding it that it's something that I probably didn't want to see, and I closed it. And then she took a little while longer, so I reopened it. And so I finally clicked it. Oh, why did I click it? And then she shows up, and then we have to go in. So that video is running in the back of my mind. Then we sit down, we have this conversation about what it is that we're trying to do with the project. And, um, you know, you're sitting there with people, you know, because they are either volunteers or, you know, they're in the director's positions, but they're also part of the mental health, you know, experience. You know, they suffer from various things. And that's what allows them to then work with other people and be peer leaders and educate. So, y'all, I'm full of all kind of emotions. And then we're sitting there and we're talking. And then some of, you know, just in general, explaining what we're trying to do, explaining why we chose to do it, explaining why we are in the positions that we're in to do what we're doing. We get into our own personal mental wellness. And so some of the scabs start to be ripped off sitting there at the table with, with these other people. I'm telling you right now, I was a mess. I was sitting across from one of their um, board members who some of the things that I'm saying is bringing her to tears, some of the things, and I'm sure it's basically stuff that she's remembering or recalling. And so we're kind of all sitting there in various states of emotion, some crying, some just in awe. I was a nervous 
wreck because I felt like at any moment I was going to lose it at the table trying to get support for a project that means a lot to me while in the back of my mind I'm seeing this video. So when I was done with the, the meeting and I finally got to experience everything that had happened and, and it settled in the spirit, it was so hard. Like I was exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. I got to the house and just had a few minutes of, to myself. And I just, I mean, I had wine, y'all. I had wine at like 12 o'clock. That's early for me. Mm, that sounds like one of my days, honey. And, and it was red wine that hits me a little bit harder than other wine. And I had to have that glass of wine, and I had to go take a nap. Mm. Like, this oh, yeah, you took a page mm. right on out my book. Mm. You took a page right on out my book today, didn't you? I did. It was so much. So, Ron, that's how I'm doing today. I am doing an emotional mess today. Uh, that 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 is bad to hear, but it's good to hear because the fact that you have emotions means that you're living, means that you are going to be part of that change. So that's the good part of it. You know, you got to look at it through the rose-tinted glasses. Um, I don't know where I come down in the whole situation because enough has been enough. It ain't is enough. It's been enough. And, I mean, I appeal to some of the men. It's like, all right, so what are we going to do? Mm. And, and there are certain things that are, you know, talked about and, you know, thrown around and things of that nature and certain things that are actually planned and certain things that plans are fall through on and, you know, all different stages of whatever, whatever. Well, right. b- b- what are you going to do? Like, are you going to continue? Like, as a person who has no um, warrants or has no felonies or has no misdemeanors and no child support person that you see somebody get into an altercation, what then is stopping you from helping that person? Hmm. What's stopping you besides pussiness? Hmm. I mean, what's stopping you besides that? I mean, besides one has to say you you don't want to lose something. I'm sorry. I don't know if America heard what you said. What's no, they heard what I said. You just want me to say it again. You want me to say it again? Is that what no, it is? I, mean, I, I heard it. Did you hear it? Right. I don't know if everybody oh. heard it. Okay. Yeah, Maybe Jackie heard it. I don't know, Jackie, if you heard it. Okay. I mean, he said, what's stopping you besides, what was the word? Pussiness. Pussiness. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I said with an echo. How about that? I believe, okay. I believe that what's stopping us as a people is the systematic brainwashing of our people, you know? Now, and I'm not saying what's leading to that pussiness because you have an absolute point, you know what I'm saying? But, you know what I'm saying? So there's definitely systematic brainwashing that goes into it. You are absolutely right. Yes. And also, um, over the years, we've seen seen our leaders with this whole nonviolent, you know, scenario, which has never worked because we have been at war with these people ever since slavery, and we're still at war. And black people fail to realize that we are actually in a war that we have been losing. But nobody's willing to risk their lives, their family, or anything else for 
the next generation. You know, who's willing to lay down their life and say, okay, I'm going to take the first step. When I see the police, you know, beating up someone, uh, shooting someone, I'm going to step forward and do something about it. We're afraid to do that. No, well, I'm not afraid. It's just that well, certain circumstances don't happen in certain places. I mean, it's not that. I mean, and, and you have to be on that, like, like ready for that. But that speaks to being proactive and having, like, how the Panthers had um, cars that would follow the police. That's proactivity. I know something will happen. And when it happens, I'm going to be ready, as opposed to just do-do-do-do-do walking down the block and, oh, I got to get ready. You see what I'm saying? It's a different stage of planning that goes into it. It's a, it's a certain end game that you're looking at when you say to yourself, oh, I'm going to make sure that if something goes wrong, I can handle it, as opposed to, well, who's going to do something if something happens? You see what I'm saying? It's two different, different, two different mindsets. I mean, um, so, okay, so let me ask you this. Do you feel like, um, and this is for anybody, including you, Iman, do you feel like um, we are getting any closer to doing something about it by recording it and posting it and sharing it and putting it virally out there when we have these um, snippets of the realities that we can't? Do you feel like that is any way empowering, or do you feel like it's just desensitization? All right, myself, well, yeah, got it, brother. Yeah, me, myself, I think the uh, straw is going to break the camel's back. You know, this thing is going to explode. I mean, like you said, enough has been enough for too long now. And you could kick a dog for so long before that dog's going to turn on you. So. I think what's going on in America is they're trying to push us until we explode. And then once we explode, it's going to be, you know, all out chaos in the streets. And the thing is, we as black people, we're not ready for it. We don't have the assault rifles and the telescopic lenses and, you know, all this. So it's, it's going to be a real mess. America, it's coming to it's coming to a head sooner or later, but it's going to come to a head. You know, the thing is, are we ready for it? You want to hear something funny? Oh. Um, I'm with you on the fact that we're not necessarily ready for it, but I don't think we're not ready for it because we don't have guns because guns is just one kind of weapon. And True. and we can get we can get biological with weapons, we can get metaphysical with weapons, and still, as a black man, you're gonna come out on top. All right. So the the thing that I look at though is we're not ready because we're not ready mentally. Right. You know what I mean? Mentally, we're not ready. We're not ready to do without certain things. We're not ready to to, 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 to to prioritize certain things. We're not ready to look and say, this is what's most important and I'm going to have. We're not ready to school our own children. How about that? We're not ready to grow our own food. You know what I'm saying? Things like that. It's little simple things that we ain't even ready for. So I know we ain't ready for the time gorilla in the room. So, I mean, if we can get that point, I mean, weapons, yeah, I mean, it, would, it wouldn't hurt to have, you know what I'm saying, some missiles and some planes and things. That wouldn't hurt, but I'm not going to say what about that because, Everybody defecates, and ain't nothing like, you know what I'm saying, 
some of that biological warfare being thrown on you. You ask any guard in jail. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, I mean, it's definitely different things that are weapons besides guns. But, you know, that's me. Imaji, do you want to add anything? Because you've been an emotional mess today, too, for whatever your personal reasons are. But I know that this definitely didn't help. Right, it didn't. I was already in a mood when I woke up. I was already in a mood. Like, I woke up because, you know, yeah, I had it early morning meeting, and you know how, yeah, I work from home, so, you know, I was already in this mood, and then I see this, and I'm like, today, not today, not not today, you know, and then I'm, and my mind already goes to, I need to set eyes on my, my black men that I know that are out here, you know, all they want to do is just go to work. You you know, I'm worried because all they want to do is step outside their home and go to work. I need to set eyes on my black men today. I need to to talk to them. I need to say, hey, listen, I tell you all the time that I love you. And and one of them, you know, and the thing is I get updates all through the night on my phone. And sometimes I want people to just shut up in the middle of the night. Um. Come on, you shut up. Just, just, just go date it. Go sleep. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so, nothing is important to you at three o'clock in the morning. So I'm understanding that the the volume is is pretty low. Um, and I don't know if if you guys can do anything on your end to raise your voice volumes on your mic, but you know we do the live feed and everybody's saying the volume is too low. So. Um, if you guys can turn up your mic, if not, then okay. But if you can turn I, up your mic I, so that those viewing can can hear us a little bit better. Okay, I I turned up my phone a little bit, and I will try to speak a little bit louder because I've been talking all day. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> oh, sound like every day to me. Oh, man, oh. I get tired of talking to people. I don't. Sometimes I don't want to do people. Sometimes I just want to sit in here and be silent. I don't really want to talk to people. And today was one of them days that I didn't want to talk to people. And I definitely didn't want to talk to no entitled people. So it was just like, oh, spirit. Oh, that entitled piece, right? <laughs> that, oh, God. One that entitled so piece over. is what hurts. That entitled piece. And I don't want to talk to entitled people today. Look, I didn't want to talk to them today. I didn't want to talk to you. I didn't want you to feel like you needed to call me and tell me I better know nothing. I didn't want to hear none of right. that today. Isn't that a, but that's real. That is, And that's what people don't understand, that sometimes even when you are, are trying to not be part of um, whatever the current situation is, the current occurrence that is so unjust, and you're just simply trying to be at work, that this does have an effect on you. This does affect you sitting in that office, even if you're in a cubicle, but sitting in that office trying to do your job and being whoever the they is. And I always put the they in quotations because our days are different. Everybody's day is not just anybody who is not melanated. That's not always the day. There are the days that look like you as well, and they don't necessarily think like you. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. Um, but sitting in, in your workspace and trying to simply do your job on a day like today when you are a complete nerd, and then to have people who don't have any concern or idea that something has happened that is traumatic and that you are actually feeling but trying to somehow suppress so that you can finish your day, I understand how that can actually affect your mood. And like I'm telling you, this definitely affected my mood today. And I was just happy that I wasn't at my job where someone could do something else that is an irritant, and they would get all of it. They would get my Alton Sterling anger. They would get my officers who probably are not going to be in any way uh, chastised for it. They would get all my anger unleashed on them for simply asking me a dumb question related to work just because that is that's what's affecting me at the time. And that is definitely, again, relating this all back, that is definitely a mental wellness issue because what do you think these traumatic experience, experiences do to people, not a people collectively, but to individuals? How do you think that? I, I know that the way that I feel for for black men, for black youth right now, I could not have a son because I don't know where I would be right now. I don't know how I probably would be in such a depression that I, I couldn't even do a show. I, I probably wouldn't be able to go out of my house. My sons wouldn't be able to go out of the house. I don't know how I would be an effective mother if I had sons and this was going on because that connection is it's different than even with my nephews. And I even worry with my nephews, but my real, like, you know, coming out of the JJ being, I don't, I don't think it would be easy. Yeah. That's where I, that's exactly where I was. Like my thought was, yes, I have a daughter, but how would I, like, where would my mental state really be if this was my son? And then, or if this is the man that I love, like, my, I would lose it. I, I'm not even going to pretend like I wouldn't lose it. Um, I would have probably told a couple of people where they could go today and how they could get there and how long they were welcome to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think my, my spirit would, like, I just, my spirit was just not in it. And my mood was so funky to the point where, you know, best friend was like, I'm not dealing with this today. Right. And you, and I mean, I'm, and I'm sure you were like, okay, <laughs> shit, don't deal with it. I'm, I'm out. I got Save silent yourself. for a moment. And we were riding down the street. I got silent for a moment. And he was like, you okay? Uh, you just stop talking. Just you hush. <laughs> right now. Just leave me alone and let me be just for right. a second. Because it, it's to the point now, like, we got mad about, you know, other things. We get mad about it, and we well, we kind of just like, okay, we're mad. What are we going to do? But then it continues what? to happen, and it's building up, and it's building up. And it's just like a scab that you keep picking at. And it's always, if you don't let it heal, it's still going to bleed. Mm-hmm. So it's like we keep doing this and keep doing this, and it keeps doing this. And it's like, when is it going to when is someone and a, a group of us and even myself to right. say, you know what? Yes, we are tired. Yes, I am sick of you. 
and and that's why I've been glad that I work from home because everybody had right. to go into that an office today. That's I would have probably showed all of my natural black ass today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all of it, like mm-mm. all five foot one of it, I would have showed all of it today, and I just wasn't mm-hmm. in that space with people. And he always um, jokes with me because I'm always like, "Hey, let me know when you get there. Hey, I need a hug yeah. before you leave. Hey, uh, I need a hug when you get here. Like, I just, I just need that because." Now I can put my hands on you and say, okay, you're here, you're in the physical. Because when I, when you go off and you're gone for however long, I'm worried, like right. legit worried. And he says, you're such a worry ward, and you worry about everything. No, yeah, but then you I turn worry on the about you. And see how worry can manifest itself in the reality sometimes. So, yeah, I'm glad and, you talk. Uh oh. I'm glad you said something about reality. I have four sons and eight grandsons. And wow. The, the reality for me is, in the back of your mind, you have this fear that anything could happen to them at any time, not only them, yourself. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a black man that if I'm driving down the road and I see some blue light, I'm looking. But at the same time, the adrenaline is flowing, you know. My heart is beating fast. I haven't done anything. I'm still driving. But as soon as I see those blue lights, I hear that siren, I'm looking like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? I hope it's not me, you know. And and in the past, I was a police officer. I um, went in the military and became a military policeman. So I know how dirty policemen are. You know, one of the first things you learn as a police officer is you can get away with anything as long as you write it up in your report. The way you write it up, the judge is going to believe you. You could be dead wrong, but he's going to to read that report, and he's going to take your word before he takes anyone else's word, you know. Right. And um, once I got out of the military, I came to Savannah and went to a police academy here and became a policeman out on the campus of Savannah State University. I got so fed up with sleeping with a gun under my pillow, looking at my neighbors as though they were my enemies, being paranoid that they were looking at everything that I did. So it got to a point where I said, I can't live like this, and I quit the police force. You know, it is really crazy the mindset of police officers. They have the highest rate of suicide and alcoholism of any job in America. Mm-hmm. You know, and not only that, drug abuse. You know, police officers are drug addicts, they're alcoholics, they're racist. You know, everything that anyone else is police officers are that. And they don't have psychological evaluation. So you got a lot of policemen who not only hate society, they hate themselves, and they take out right. their aggression um, mixed in with fear of, of people they don't know, don't trust, and don't understand, and they, you know, result to the violence. I mean, they, they want to kill you before you kill them. You know, you're taught as a police officer that everybody is scum, 
You don't trust anybody. And with that kind of mindset, it's going to be all kind of foolishness going on. But, you know, I can't see where it's going to stop. I, I, I really can't because they're going to get away with it. In this case, if you watch the videos, you can see both of this boy's hands, and they say he had a gun. There's no gun there. But guess what? These police officers are on paid leave. They know that they're not going to And they keep, on, they keep saying they're on leave, but they, they still haven't made it known that it's paid leave, meaning you chilling on vacation yeah. at the house after taking you the last one of those guys. This is his second time being involved in the killing of a suspect, um, and I believe it was in 2014. It's not like 10 years ago. We're talking about, mm. and, and these guys haven't even been on the force, but maybe three to three to two or three years. Um, the two of them, you know, one had three and one had two. And how are you in three or two years having had two fatal um, situations where you've taken a life? And I believe that um, the first one was also leaving the scene. He was, you know, probably shot in the back as well. So mm. we're not talking about a situation where, for one, you need to think about training. Because if they have only been on the job three years or two years and their suspects keep getting shot in the back, I mean, even when you look at the video, they look like, oh, my God, what do you do? Just shoot him. You know, it doesn't even look like there's any critical thinking about how to um, de-escalate the situation and, and take him into custody alive. That doesn't even look like it's a thought. It looks like, oh, my God, he's moving, he's still breathing, shoot him. That's what it looks like is happening. And, and I, I just... They need to think about the training of these individuals as well. So, um, well, the blame is all across well, the board. Well, in the police departments, they train you to kill, you know. When, you, yeah. when you're doing target practice, you have the silhouette of a person. And what you aim for is the chest area. Up on the chest, they call that the kill zone. They don't, they don't train you to shoot the leg or shoot the arm or anything. Mm. They right. teach you to kill a person. That's how they train. You know, that's yeah. the mindset of the Well, police. I guess they're doing what they were trained to do because they're definitely taking yeah. people out of here. The, exactly. You, you, you're, you're, yep, I agree. But here's, here's one but let me other ask you thing this. that I also... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I mean, why are you surprised? Um, to me, I get the impression when people say things like that, that they're saying, well, it's like this. It wasn't like this before, and now it's like this. And the question I was asked, well, what year wasn't it like? <laughs> when were the good old days? You know what I mean? Like, why are we surprised when this brother gets taken out senselessly? It happened last year. Happened a year before that. Happened a year before that. Happened a year before I've that. To, happened a year. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've had to sit down. I know the last few years I've had to sit down with my daughters in the summer and say, this is what's happening. This this is what happened. It's, it's almost like every we summer take we got over, to have one of these conversations. Uh, uh, until we have control over our culture, our society, our communities, right. it's going to happen next year, too. How about that? Matter of fact, another one might happen before the summer ends. How about that? I, I, I give it a few days, you know, a week. But then you know what? 
this that leads me kind of to my next my next question. Um, this is what I witnessed, and this is my own interpretation. And so, you know, yes, it's biased to how I perceived it. But uh, I don't watch the award shows. I'm not really into that. However, um, I saw so much chatter about Jesse Williams' speech that I wanted to see it. So I found the speech and I watched it and I thought, oh, those great, you know, it's nice that that was said by someone who has the um, arena that he had. Um, but then I, I look at us talking about us and we are angry that he's getting any kind of an accolade, any praise, any, any press, uh, any following for what he said because when we start naming hundreds of people who have already said what he said, but when it's a movement, doesn't it matter if it's a mass movement? Does it matter that Uncle Jethro didn't get his name called out on the BT Awards because he said the same thing at the family reunion? Isn't it the fact that you want more people saying the same thing so that the momentum is fueling the masses? I mean, isn't that the point? And it, it really irked me because as long as we are practicing the divisive tactics that they are, are have taught us, we are still not unified. We are not together. And our movement is as weak as how much unity we have. So it, it really, it's like, yeah, somebody else may have said it and may have said it another way and might have got three people to say that was right. And this man might have stood up on his platform and said it and got 3,000 people to say he is right. But if, if it's right, it's right. No matter who says it, no matter how many likes they get on the post, shouldn't you be excited that somebody else is saying exactly what you want to see and maybe they can use their platform to reach more people who don't even know? I, that that bugs me about us. All right. Let's go with that. Let's go with that, right? So now let's look at the other side of that. The other side of that is, you know what? Said it. And what are you actually, uh, all right, the fact that this man said something that 20, 30 people said before him, okay, we want it to be a mass movement. I'm with you on that. It's more than saying it. You know what I mean? It's about actually walking it. And from what I see, this man has walked it. So now what that tells me is that now you're nitpicking and you're looking for reasons to hate somebody, okay? Yeah. And if you're nitpicking and looking for reasons to hate somebody, then we really don't even want you down with this. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? So what that may do in situations like that is that shows you who, you know, you may not want to associate with. But then you also look yeah. at it as it, it's an opportunity for you. Because just as much as they're saying this, they may not see that they're lost. They may not see. So but now see, somebody I'm in your you, position who, who noticed that it. I saw that from, most of the ones that I saw that from were the ones who, who profess to be the, the awake ones, the conscious brothers, the, the, the ones who are all about Kemet. And they're the ones that I saw the most of that from. They were dark-skinned, too, they right? Were, they were dark-skinned, too? I'm not going to even talk about the color. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm waiting for you to say that. 
I'm that's for really the most, you know, they post about that the most. They're the ones that are always posting. Everybody needs to wake up and become conscious and, and be aware and stop the brainwashing. And, and, the, and then you sit there and do the very thing. Because they sit back and they watch and they go, huh, they can't even like each other. They can't even like each other. They can't even say the same exact thing and like each other. How? But understand what and I'm then, saying, though. What I'm saying I'm is what you're at, saying. You have to tell them this, though. Because even smart people go to school. You know what I'm saying? Even smart people that learn stuff, they just got to learn this about they, themselves. And who better to show them sit, than you? And then they sit and they, then they say, well, he's not Malcolm X. And he's not. But do you not think that Malcolm X was speaking for a man? Like he was the spokesperson for the movement that several people behind him supported, and he probably wasn't the only one saying what he said. You know, and I'm like, come on, people. Please stop and, and think about the things that you're saying. And he may not be Michael Max, but he, he might. He damn sure looked like Harry Belafonte, and Harry Belafonte and Michael Max was cool. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the point that I'm making is you don't necessarily have to be the man in the driver's seat to be in that car. Exactly. And then, you know, this is the other thing that I think some of us need to stop and for real think about. When you're talking about a community, when you're talking about being um, a group of people with various strengths, maybe somebody's job is exactly that, to rally the people. Maybe they're not the person that carries the gun. Maybe they're not the person that infiltrates the enemy. Maybe they are the, their job and their gift is to rally the people to make the people aware, to make the people realize, yes, that's what I need to do, and then their job is to point those people in the direction to be of service in whatever their strength is. Maybe that's the whole idea of community. I bet you if you look back to all those stories of Kenneth that you study, everybody didn't do everything, and there's a reason that that community that you so love and worship and cherish was as successful as it was because everybody worked in that part of the community that they were supposed to be in because of their strength and their knowledge. Right. Everybody getting in their lane. Everybody's not supposed to do everything. Everybody can't be and, sister shoulder. Oh, it just, it, it's like, come on. you you got to see what community means when you're trying to build one. Do any of you guys remember... Back in the 60s and early 70s where people had block parties, they had rent parties to help their neighbors pay the rent. Absolutely. Okay. I don't know nothing about that. Okay, a rent hey, party hey, was hey. If, 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 I, if I, the rent party was if I had a neighbor and I knew they couldn't pay their rent, maybe their husband was out of work or something, well, we would get together and... Fry some chicken up. Love for fry some chicken and you sell dinners, you have a dance, you know, you, you sell beer, you might boil crab. And, yeah, and you, yes, and sir. You had, a, you had a party and everybody would pay, you know, maybe a dollar, maybe 50 cents, whatever they could pay, you know, right. and, they would, and they would get the money and help pay, their neighbors pay their rent. And we were, we were a closer-knit community. We had left back in those days, but we were closer-knit. We were a community. Now, I don't know my neighbor that lives behind me. I don't know their name. You know? Right. I know everybody around me, though. Mm-mm. I got to know and, people. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's, 
funny that you say that because we even feel somehow violated when the neighbors that actually try to reach out. I remember um, being, you know, I'm a, I'm a late person. I'm up late. And I remember standing, looking out my window and seeing that the neighbor behind me had left the garage door open. Okay, it's, you know, midnight, 1 o'clock. I'm sure you didn't intend to leave the garage door up with your valuable things in the garage exposed. But it was almost like offensive that we went to tell him that. It's almost like the audacity of you to to ring my doorbell at 1 o'clock in the morning and tell me that all my shit was exposed and people could steal my shit. I'm thinking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. So who were you up with at 1 o'clock in the morning looking out the window? That has absolutely nothing to do with the point. Nothing to do with the point. Leave it to you to derail the whole purpose of a statement. You No, because you said we. we. You said we, and I know you wasn't waking up one of your children to go with you at 1 in the morning. Maybe so I this did. sounds Maybe I like, did. no, no, you're lying, you're lying. Say I don't ask you what you're doing at 1 o'clock in the morning. Walking through the fog. Well, you know what? Point <laughs> well made. Let's continue on. I'm sorry. I shouldn't even say nothing. My bad. You remember that Iman that's when he went to jail. I remember. I remember. You know, I remember everything. That is those. Did we? Did we ever make those free Ron T-shirts? Mm. Because mm. he's free. Mm. He's free right now because he got he, his freedom. Yeah, we, but I mean, those would have been cool. I think we should still hashtag. I shouldn't even say nothing. I apologize. You I'm brought bad. it up. That's what you get. Shut your damn mouth sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I for everybody to say to, to me. For everybody that's new who hasn't listened to the show like for years, one time Ron was walking home oh, and he decided to walk through the park. And Ron, this was in Jersey or this was in New York? This is in New York. You know everything else. You know everything else. Yes, so it was Yes, home. it was in New York and you know the time that you can't walk through the park. There. Yes, because the park was closed at the time that he was carrying his ass through the park. So Ron ended up in jail because the popo said that you're not supposed to walk through a closed park with your black ass. Is basically Here's what they that said. bullshit. All right, all right. We go tell her. We go tell her. Right. We go tell her. Okay, we go tell her. Right. See, so I, I look to my left, and when I, I, I look to my left, and when I look to my left, I seen the police in the park talking to somebody. So I'm like, well, if they're in the park talking to somebody, then it must be still open. It got to be. they talking to somebody. So I get closer. Now I'm on the phone talking to somebody while I'm looking at them talking to somebody. I'm like, all right, that's not a problem. So I walk up to them. They let the people go. They turn to me. They say, excuse me, sir, do you have ID? So I'm on the phone. My people are like, oh, well, I'm going to have to get off the phone right now because I'm getting arrested by the police, um, and I'll call you all later. And they let them go in the park and took me for 22 minutes. It was 10.22, past close to 10 o'clock. So you take me to jail. That's some bullshit. I think it's racism and white supremacy, if you want the truth, because there was some Europeans who they was talking to in the park. They wasn't police. Why they get to walk out? It's ten, the same exact time that you got me. It's the same exact time you let them go. Why you let them go? 
what, what what excuse do they have? At least my excuse is I've seen y'all here, so that's why I walked towards you. What excuse do they have? You see? But they want to take me and run me through the system and do this and that. See, you're trying to get me upset. See? That's that bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what kind of voodoo you have to get me kicked off the line when I'm in the middle of antagonizing you. But could you cut that shit out? Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Whatever. Wow. Let's get let's get back to the subject. Yeah, who who is you up at at one o'clock in the morning? Oh my god. About four minutes to be real. You <laughs> <laughs> moved on. Dude, move on. Let that go, Ron. Let that go. Mm. Let it go, Ron. Let it go. I mean, listen. So as the brothers say, get back to the subject, right? What we have to realize is we could, what they call mentally masturbate, we could pontificate, we could do everything we wanted to. But unless you are willing to put some action behind your words, it don't matter whether the words are serious or funny. It don't make a good goddamn difference. But if you ain't willing to raise your children the right way, if you ain't willing to go out there and give up your time, your resources, your energy for the cause, if you're not willing to do none of that, if you're not willing to circulate your dollar with your people, if you're not willing to help people get out of bad situations like you were talking about, have a rent party, if you're not willing to be your brother's keeper, then the hell with what would you talking about? Because it don't make no difference. We're going to be in the same position in 2027, in 2087. Amen. Amen. And you know, I, I, you know, one of the things I think really people have a hard time knowing. They know the rhetoric, but they don't know what that looks like physically. They know the rhetoric is we got to do something, stand up, everybody do something, but they don't know what that looks like. So, so all they know is either you march or you riot, or we're gonna shoot you. And I don't think they know or have digested that you take your power back by taking away the effects that anyone else can have on your shit. So they can hate us as much as they as they want, but if my economics allows me not to have to do business with you, I'm hurting your economy. If I know that I'm not going to falter because my brother has my back, I don't have to worry about you. I just I don't think people realize when you're saying do something that doing something does not look like what you might see in a war movie. Doing something means that mentally you have to do something to make yourself less reliant, less dependent on a source that doesn't give a shit about you. And when but it also it does look like those that, war movies sometimes. Sometimes oh it does God. look like that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm being serious. That cannot be. That cannot be the only thing. That cannot be the only thing that everybody is is expected to do. But I'm not talking about necessarily the shoot them, bang, bang. I'm talking about the doing without. I'm talking about the tightening. You know what I'm saying? The belt. I'm talking about you. You, you know what I mean? Like having the. You know what I'm saying? Ration out certain things. You know what I mean? I'm talking about the, and, the, the, the peripheral that, things in war. And the fact that I didn't know that. I bet you there are some other people that don't know that. You know what I'm saying? And those are the conversations that we need to have in our community is what does that look like? What does it look like when you say we got to do something? Because, you know, I want to understand once once I'm conscious, once I'm awake, then what? 
Once I can set up and go, yeah, I see it. I see what you're saying. I see. Then what? What happens next? What happens next? Especially if I'm the only one in a, a 50-mile radius that's away. What does that mean? All right. So to that point, there's a gentleman. You had him on the show, um, Carlton Jones. He um he's doing a um a film called Project Independence, and basically what film is about is what you're saying. What does the finish line look like? Mm-hmm. What does the independent black nation look like? How do you get to that point? What steps are needed to get there? So he's right now. Y'all can go look him up on 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 the book um, called Tone Jones and. Go throw a few hours at it if you if, if you so have it in your budget just to help this brother get this movie off the ground. But the, so we are doing things. We are showing people. We are telling people. We are okay. doing. But we need to do it on the biggest scale. Number one, to, so I, I think everybody would agree. But what I think we need not do is think that just because you don't see it, it's not right there in front of your face. You know what I mean? We do know what it sounds like and looks like because it came in the voice of Amos Wilson. And anybody can go on YouTube and put Amos Wilson in and just listen for a few hours and understand exactly what he's talking about, about being independent, about, you know, certain things. It it, it comes in the form of Marcus Garvey. It comes in the form of, you know what I'm saying, these different people. You know what? We ain't even got to go back to Marcus Garvey. It comes in the form of somebody like Automatics, you know, people who are actually still living. So, if we actually listen and we be proactive and we look for these things, we'll find them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't mm-hmm. think we should minimize those brothers who are actually still alive and doing this or just died and doing this. Yeah, they're not doing it on the Michael Jordan level, but that don't mean they're not ball players. You know what I mean? That don't right. mean they and, and, and I think it, I think it ties it back into the relevance. It ties it back into a, a platform and how many uh, you touch. But I definitely think that even though the the fellas that are, are reaching 20 or 30, very, very relevant, that doesn't negate the relevance of someone who's touching 20,000, 30,000. And if his voice, if that platform is his gift and he can funnel the people this direction and then say now, Here's my man that you don't know who's going to tell us where to go next. And that's what we're supposed to do. You know, the believers who listened to what Malcolm was talking about, there was a whole system ready to to, to show you what his teachings were, were gained from. And he wasn't just the only part of that. And everybody cannot be the superstar. That's not everybody's role. You know, it's funny, though, because when he became the only part of it is when they killed him. And he was, you know what I'm saying, confined by the structure of that organization. They let him rock. You notice when they killed him is when he did exactly what you said. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So once you become unpredictable, you know what I'm saying, in the nation of Islam, he was predictable. They knew exactly what right. he could do, what he couldn't do, what he was, what he wasn't, you know what I mean? But when he's by right. himself and he's his own free bird, he's unpredictable, and we have no idea. Oh, we have to get rid of him now. Mm-hmm. 
I, I, I hear that too. I mean, and and when I used him, I knew that conversation was going to ensue as well. But I just think that there's no possible way that anyone can rally the masses and go it alone. Because once you rally the masses, here they come. So now what? You're not alone again. I, I just, I think people need to get off this kick of I am the God stand. I have the answer, and nobody else is qualified. That bothers me a lot because I don't know every damn thing. I know I don't. But when I work with a group of knowledgeable people, we know every damn thing. You know, that that's a mm-hmm. feeling that I, I have. So. You find out. You be listening to what I'll be saying. I don't like you. you. Sometimes we listen to you. No. This is not the day that we like him. Okay. Well, resist. <laughs> okay. Stay resistant. But I mean, all right, so okay. now, so now let's we, take a step back. Let's over. take a step back. We are over. We're over. You know we're over, right? Like we're in recorded time. Oh, I get it. Okay. To, yeah, but I wanted to get this this from from a couple of guys. Uh, totally different, totally shifting conversation topic. Uh, hold on, I gotta go live for this. I, I gotta go live because I need oh, to have this documented. <laughs> I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to this is important. Okay, so, and, and then, you know, Ron, you make me nervous sometimes, so uh, I don't know about this, but okay. Here's what I wanted to get from you guys. So I'm on, I got two guys on on the phone here, and before we uh, end the show, I had to get this. So this is totally off topic. This is uh, a little bit uh, ending the show, a little bit uh, lighter note than we we kind of got into the deep discussion. But I want to know what you fellas think of Mr. Feel Your Grandma. I know y'all have seen this man. He's been on the regular news. He's been on the news feed. He's He's been uh, an essence festival, baby. I want to know what you gentlemen think. Feel your grandma. And this man that they said, oh, he's 70, had to come back and say, no, I'm 54, I'm not 70. And then he started to uh, post pictures. He had to create a a page uh, as a public figure um, because he had run out of, uh, you know, friends. Uh, space for friends. So he has his own page where he just kind of posts pictures of himself in really tight pants um, and I just, and, and tight shirts. And I just, or no shirts, uh, just almost busted naked, almost. So I'm just wondering, gentlemen, what do you think? Because there was a, a big debate about the hate that, uh, that this man has, has um, received once he became a public figure because people were like, well, he's gay. Look at him. Listen to his voice. Look at how tight his pants are. He's gay. And, oh, my and God. I just, wanna, I just wonder, you know, as men who could be considered attractive by women, and at one point you're going to reach a, a, a nice ripe age where people will think that maybe you're not attractive and then you're going to shock them and still be attractive. How do you guys feel about this whole situation around, around Mr. Steele, your girl, grandma? Well, I still don't even know what you're talking about. You don't I'm know 100% about real. the little Irving Randall dude? I don't know about know. none of this. I know about it. She's been on the regular news. Yeah, I don't watch that neither. Okay. 
Yeah, I've seen it on the news and I've seen them on Facebook. But I say it's to each his reach. I mean, you're going to have hate no matter what you do, you know. If you're walking, you're going to have hate. If you're riding, you're going to have hate, you know. If you're being carried, you're going to have hate. So you're going to have your haters out there. That's just the way the world is made up today. But I'm like, if you can do it, do it. I mean, if you... So, brother, let me see if I got this straight. You're telling me that he's dating people's grandmothers? No, no, that's just just a label that they gave him because he's an elderly man that looks nice for his age, you know. Right. So, you know, people put labels on everything. Gotcha. That's not what he calls himself. That's what they call him. No, they gave him that name because they said he and he accepted it. Right, right. And, it's, and it's a play on, it's definitely the play on words of, you know, how Trey Song, she's like, this is Mr. Steal Your Girl. This is, you know, Mr. Steal Your Grandma. But he probably the, don't the, know. The, he only know about Kumbaya. He don't know about that. You know, he's old and he's real spiritual, honey, you know. Yeah, he, Kumbaya, he my lord. He don't know nothing about. But the thing, thing is this, about this man, and this is why I got tickled, because I watched it for two days. Now you just you see I didn't post nothing about him on my Facebook page. I just watched right. it for two days and I saw my friends lose their mind. Why? I don't know. Because first of all, I don't really trust men who wear tight pants. You know, who whose tight whose pants are tight as a grown woman. Right. I don't understand. I don't really trust that too much so and I don't care and 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 the thing was is that the reason why they started saying that he was gay was because some of the comments, when you went to his page and you looked at some of the comments that some gay men were leaving, mm-hmm. and instead of you just, um, you would send a wink or some, some eyes that's Googly, sir, I understand that you don't like, I mean, I understand that you may like women, and I get that, you know, but I don't know too many straight men that's okay with a gay man saying certain things to them. Mm. You know, I don't know. I don't know too many. Well, not even one, maybe. I mean, if he is but, a man of a certain age, he may not know what that stuff means. But he's, <laughs> he's 54. He's lived. He knows what some stuff means. Oh, he's 54. Means. He ain't even old. Yeah, he's not old. He, like, they thought he was 70. And then you see pictures of when he didn't have the beard. He wasn't much to look at a little while ago before we got a beard. You're so silly. No, like for real. Like sometimes beards can enhance your look. Sometimes, you know, you don't look too good. Go get your beard, get your baseball cap, then get your good old comb over, and you might be all right looking because it's what exactly oh. what he hmm. And so, and I'm looking at it as, you know, what changes did this man go through to get to this point? Because, and where did you come from? How did they find out mm. about you, Mr. Steele, somebody's grandmama? And then he don't mm. even like your grandmama. He wants young, young girls. Mm-hmm. Huh? Sir, he's, he's yeah. only 54. What 54-year-old man doesn't want a 27-year-old or a 34-year-old? Come on. Um, Sir, you could have a kid that age. And you got, I think you got, like, grandkids. Why? He does have a I think he has physical pictures on his page because he's like, famous so, now. So well, why y'all think he don't know about this stuff? Y'all say he don't know about that. He don't know. He know about it. 
No, I didn't and say he I didn't say he be didn't know. on um a, a magazine cover soon. So don't hate, just wait. No, I didn't say he didn't know anything about this. My thing is that you're responding that to the way he knows his pants are tight every time he pulls them up. He knows. He knows if he has his shape me or tuck. He knows. He know that. He know he got that T-shirt from Baby Gal. He knows. He knows. <laughs> he, knows. he knows. But but it got the reaction that he was looking for. So can you fault him for that? He was looking for some 15 minutes of fame, and he got it. Because he actually is a teacher. I think his group is third grade or something. He's a teacher. So, you know. So is he wearing these my concern, my concern, My concern actually was different. I just read through some of the posts and some of his responses, and I thought his grammar needs some work if he's a teacher. And I know that we make mm. mistakes. Mm. You know, I'm human. I am human. I'm a teacher. I'm a human. Mm. I'm you are mistakes. a human teacher. But I try to go back and edit some of my stuff even after it's posted. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that's one word. That's a BNK. Let me put it back together. You know, I, because I'm typing on the phone. I'm typing fast or whatever. But the errors that I saw weren't li- missing a word or um, dropping the end. The errors that I saw were like, Using word when it should be was, you know that subject verb agreement. That's important. Like anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I just thought. No, that's here. That's definitely here. That's 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 definitely there in Texas. That's definitely here. And that's definitely there in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) You stop talking about Texas educated. You watch it, Imaj. Um, I'm not talking. About, I'm not talking about you. I'm not. I'm not talking about the other educator that was on the show. And she didn't want us to know that she was an educator, but I knew it. Um, oh, but, I know what you're talking about. I know. I know things. I'm, I'm smarter oh than God, the average old little old bear. So done. So, so, so I'm not talking about. It. I'm talking about him specifically. I mean, you know, you gotta be, you gotta get up real early in the morning to try to get one of those old me. 